Well, this morning we come to another very well-known account in the life of Jesus. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now, ever since Adam and Eve uh, gave in to <coughs> excuse me, that first temptation in the Garden of Eden, uh, we have been locked in a labyrinth of temptation, unable to break free. Who here does not struggle with temptation? Anyone? <laughs> well, there's no surprise there, is there? Because we all do, don't we? We all struggle. There is a natural bias in each of us to feel dissatisfied with God, to doubt his word, and to give in to what our heart desires. And I guess when we come to a passage like this, uh, the big question that we all have at the, looking at a passage like this is, how do I overcome my temptations? Uh, how do I resist like Jesus did here? And so we kind of um, come to Jesus' confrontation with Satan uh, in the wilderness with a WWJD approach. I don't know if you know these little uh, bracelets that sometimes you see, uh, particularly some of the younger people wear. And uh, the WWJD uh, stands for What Would Jesus Do? And supposed to remind us uh, that when we face a difficult situation or a temptation, we say ourselves, what would Jesus do? And then we do that, and that helps us to, to obey. And we kind of come to a passage like this, and we look at Jesus facing temptation, and we say, uh, well, how can I learn from his example here? What would Jesus do? And we think that if I can just follow that, then I'll have my, all my temptations sorted out, and I'll be able to resist just like Jesus and while it is true uh, that Jesus is our great example, and there is much we can learn from him, to see this passage simply as a worked example of how to face temptation is, I want to suggest, to miss the much greater significance of the event, which deals a far greater blow to Satan and temptation than we could ever achieve ourselves. In September 2003, David Blaine, an American magician and endurance artist, began an endurance stunt suspended in a box above the Thames. Anyone remember that? Um, he, he, was, he did this for 44 days. And he deliberately stated that he wanted to better Jesus' record of 40 days without food in the wilderness. And uh, he was tempted by bemused Londoners who threw food and other items at the box. One person apparently even used a remote-controlled helicopter to send a McDonald's hamburger up to him as a taunt. Well, after the 44 days, David emerged triumphant. And then he was promptly rushed to hospital exceedingly unwell. Now, apart from achieving dubious notoriety for his stunt, it was pretty much a pointless event. However, in sharp contrast, Jesus' time in the wilderness and his subsequent temptation achieved a great deal. It's not insignificant 
that following Jesus' baptism, his very first act as the now spiritually anointed Son of God is not to preach, is not to heal, but to face temptation. And notice that this is not just a chance occasion. Jesus here is not simply off on a spiritual retreat when he is suddenly and unexpectedly ambushed by the devil. No. Have a look at Matthew 4 verse 1. For it tells us there, when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. This was a planned and deliberate first task for the Spirit-anointed Son of God. And as we read on into the account, we should hear echoes of the Old Testament, of Adam and Eve being tempted by the devil in the garden and giving in. Of Israel, the people of God, 40 years in the wilderness, facing testing and temptation and failing. And now Jesus enters into the world. Jesus, God's son. The new Adam. The new Israel. And the question we all have in our minds at this moment should be, will he, will he fail too? Will he be just like Israel? Will he be just like Adam and Eve? Will he fail too? And all creation holds its breath as the devil approaches. Well, the devil presents Jesus with three temptations. Let's look at each in turn. The first temptation is to dissatisfaction. Verses 3 and 4. Now, keep in mind that Jesus has just been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he is hungry. And then we read verse 3. And the tempter came to, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, we might think at this point, well, what's the big deal of that? You know, it was surely just being sensible to use what power and authority uh, one had as the Son of God in this way. After all, he is in the wilderness. He is weakened from hunger. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, David Blaine ended up being rushed to hospital at that point in time. Would God really be so displeased if he just turned a few stones into bread? Doesn't seem like a big deal. So in verse 3, the devil tempts Jesus. But he tempts him to take control and to disobey God's word. You see, what Satan wants from Jesus here is to be dissatisfied with God's provision. Dissatisfied with God's plans for him. To think to himself, God, you're not looking after me. This is all your fault, God. I'm starving, I'm weak, I'm in danger, and you're not looking after me. I better take control of things myself and sort things out. And of course, that's been Satan's tactic time and time again. He did the same in the Garden of Eden 
when he tempted Adam and Eve uh, to question God's word. To think that God was somehow holding out on them by withholding from them the fruit from the one tree. And similarly, the Israelites, during their 40 years in the wilderness, they were constantly dissatisfied with God. They kept questioning God's promises and saying, well, God, you said this was going to be fantastic. Well, we'd be better off back in Egypt. Let's go back. Does it not sound anything like temptations you face today? God, I'm not sure you've really got a handle on this situation. I'm just going to take over and sort it out. After all, it's my future at stake here. I know what I need, and that's what I'll do. Or, God, I know what your word says, but you know, things have changed quite a bit. Society is very different. My job is on the line here, and if I lose that... I can't provide for my family. So I'm sure you'll understand. Well, what is Jesus' response? Well, Jesus resists in verse 4 by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 in the Old Testament, which in its context, Moses is teaching Israel that the reason God let them face hunger in the desert and then subsequently fed them with manna in the wilderness was precisely to test their heart as to whether they would keep his commands. And so we read in Deuteronomy verse eight, uh, chapter 8, we read this, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, where Adam and Eve failed, to obey God's word and took the fruit. And where Israel failed to obey God and trust his word and grumbled and rebelled against him in the wilderness, here we see Jesus remaining perfectly obedient to God's word. So the first temptation is to dissatisfaction. The second temptation is to doubt. Is to doubt, verses 5 to 7. Okay, Jesus, says the devil, so you know your Bible. Well, how far are you prepared to go to show that you trust God's word? Have a look at verse 5 and 6 again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. This is possibly the first invitation to a bungee jump. And then... The devil even quotes, or shall I suggest, misquotes scripture. says, well, Jesus, you quoted scripture at me, let me quote some scripture at you. And he misquotes from Psalm 91. And he, he says that in verse 6, we read, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now both those two references are from Psalm 91. And He's saying, in effect, Jesus, go for it. God has promised that he will protect you, hasn't he? Don't you trust him? Therefore, jump. However, if we were to go back and to do a little study on, in the context of Psalm 91, 
we'll discover there that the context is of the people of God already under attack and God coming to the rescue. It's not the people deliberately putting themselves into danger in order to test God to see if he would protect them. Do you see the difference? It's a subtle difference, but an important one. And so unsurprisingly, Jesus again rebukes the devil, quoting from this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Israelites are at Massa and they put God to the test, accusing him of bringing them into the wilderness to die. And Jesus says, verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, the devil wants to make God out to be the liar. You see, God has promised, and he hasn't kept his promise. And we all buy into that kind of lie, don't we? How often don't we accuse God of not keeping promises that he never made? and therefore justify our own unfaithfulness and disobedience. You see, we so often fall into the, and accept the lie that says, well, when we become Christians, all our problems will disappear. Life will be fantastic. All our monetary issues will be gone. All our relationship problems will be dealt with. Life will be perfect happiness, contentment, and bliss. And do you know what? In the Bible, there is no such promise from God that that will happen the moment you become a Christian. That is promised in eternity. At the end of time, when we, re- when we are with him for all eternity. But as long as we remain on this world with all its fallenness and brokenness, the Bible never promises perfect happiness, contentment, and uh, satisfaction, and wealth, and prosperity, and success, or any of those things. But we believe the lie, the lie that Satan gives out. Well, the evil one, the devil, the Satan, whatever you want to call him, has got one final temptation in his toolbox. The temptation to desire, verse 8 to 10. The temptation to desire. Look at verse 8 and 9 again of Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Worship me and all this is yours. No need to stick to God's plan. I have a pain-free option. A shortcut to the destination that ends up with you having all this. Glory, isn't that what you have been promised? Well, I can give it to you, says the devil. Sound familiar? The offer of greatness, of happiness, of contentment, of success, of fulfillment, of fame, of fortune. I can keep going. The list is pretty much endless. All yours, if only you'll take my advice. And we are tempted down the path to glory, which sidesteps the path of obedience to God's word. After all, what did Satan offer Adam and Eve? Did he not say, well, take my advice, eat from the tree, and you will be like God? Shortcut. Well, Jesus is not fooled. Again, Jesus rebukes Satan, quoting again from Scripture, 
from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. Remember Israel's constant problem uh, as they moved from the wilderness into the promised land uh, where all the Canaanites were with all their idols and so on was to be forever running after foreign gods, forever going after the idols. And yet again, Jesus, the true Israel, will not be turned away from worshipping God alone. And so Jesus answers with these words from Deuteronomy. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And what happens? Verse 11, then the devil leaves him, and behold, the angels come and were ministering to him. So what do we learn from the account of Jesus' temptation. As we reflect on these words, as we ponder our own sinfulness, how we are just like Adam, how we are just like Israel, that time and again we fall prey to the devil's temptations. We give in, we are dissatisfied with, with God, we don't obey his word, we often don't trust God's word and question his faithfulness, and we are so easily enticed by other gods. We enticed, we make idols of all manner of things. In fact, if we are honest by ourselves, we have to acknowledge that we can't resist temptation. That we are no different to Adam or indeed to Israel. And that is what makes these verses so amazing. Because yeah, we see in the person of Jesus Christ, God's anointed son, that he did face the devil and he did face the temptations, but he did not fall. These verses are all about Jesus and they teach us how we now can have deep assurance in him as our saviour that we can trust him to save us because he is the one who faced the devil's temptations and remained faithful to his father. So we can have complete confidence that as the second Adam and the true Israel, as our representative, that on the cross Jesus was the perfect atoning sacrifice, able to take all our failure, all our sin, all our falling to temptation on himself to bear the punishment for us in our place so that we in return can receive his righteousness and be declared holy before God. What does Paul say of Jesus on the cross? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, this passage should cause us to look afresh at Jesus and to praise him for his great salvation and to trust in him and depend on him. Amen.